Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. promised, we're going to answer more of your questions from the end of 2017. There are a bunch of good ones, so we might go a little longer than usual. Without further delay, here's what you asked the Anxiety Sisters. Our first question goes like this. I have a huge problem with drinking too much diet soda when my anxiety levels are through the roof, which sadly fuels my sweet tooth. I'm trying very hard to drink only the flavored soda waters, but I absolutely crave Coke Zero on days when my anxiety is so bad that I don't want to leave the house. How can I better manage my stress eating? Ah, stress eating, something we know nothing about. Nothing at all stressy? Me? <laughs> no. Either one of us. No. And she stress eats with Diet Coke. I mean, yeah, I mean I'm not even totally considering her a yeah, stress Yeah, that's eater. not really, I mean, you know, she's not going for the good stuff. I know, exactly. Well, um, well, most of us crave carbohydrates and sweets when we feel stress, and there's biological reasons for that. First, tell us. Tell first us. of all, uh, sweets light up the pleasure centers in our brain. Like, you know how dopamine lights up the pleasure center in your brain uh-huh. like when you're doing something exciting? Well, it's a reward center, and sugar does the same thing. Lights it right up. So yeah, it's kind of like uh, they've actually done studies where people who who are like sugarholics like me, it lights up the same way like for a cocaine addict. Cocaine lights up their brain. Sugar yeah, lights up our brain. who would take cocaine if there's sugar available? I know. Exactly. I know. In any case, sugar is also digested really quickly. It's the thing, carbohydrates are the fastest things to digest, you know, more so than, let's say, protein or fat. So the quickest way to feel soothed and relieved biologically is to get as much sugar in you as possible. And we know this, right? Because you get a sugar rush when you, when you, well, not that you would know about this, Maggie, when <laughs> right. you eat an entire sugar thing rush. of gum. But... <laughs> But the point is that um, sugar r- works really fast in our system, so that's why we crave it. And it gives you quick energy, which, you know, when we were running away from danger. Exactly. You know, the fight or flight impulse, you get quick energy. It's fast fuel. Fast fuel, and, yes. And here's another thing. Uh, sugar releases serotonin, which is our feel-good chemical, right? The right. neurotransmitter in our stomachs and in our brains that make us feel good, stuff that the SSRIs that we get prescribed actually help us generate more of. Mm-hmm. Well, sugar generates more serotonin naturally, and it also dials back the stress response. Um, when we release cortisol and adrenaline and you know all these different chemicals going and hormones coursing through our bodies under stressful situations, fight or flight, sugar calms that response. So there are exquisite reasons that you are reaching for that sugary Coke Zero. Um, yeah. Although we still can't forgive you that it's Coke Zero and not like ice cream or something. Or really... even regular Coke. I know. <laughs> I mean, come but on. it's okay. Have a Coke and a smile. Okay. <laughs> I just showed my age. Um, anyway, so the cravings make sense biologically. You know, soda's a sugar injection. Right. So how do, how do you manage this? Okay. That well, was the rest of the question. Well, you got I me. I mean, I can't manage it. <laughs> how do you manage it, Meg? <laughs> I'm asking you. I'm asking how you. How do you manage this? Okay. So we're both bona fide sugar addicts. So what we're not going to do is tell you some crap like cut back on your soda habit and choose dried fruit and nuts <laughs> because we understand that that's really not an option. Right. Um, 
be kind to yourself as you search for other coping mechanisms. It's, I think it's okay to drink the soda if you're in the throes of anxiety and that gives you some relief. I think it's okay. Uh, I think if you deprive yourself of it and judge yourself because of it, it, it will only add to the anxiety, truthfully. Or at least that's the case for me. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a coping mechanism, and that's the thing to remember. Right. I mean, it may not be the one that you ultimately want to use all the time, but it is a coping mechanism that helps. Yes. And, like I said, better than cocaine. That's my story, and I'm so <laughs> Um Listen, this is a great question because yeah. a, a big focus uh, for Anxiety Sisters in 2018 is going to be on eating and anxiety, eating issues and stress and anxiety. Uh, we're even planning a retreat around this topic since so many Anxiety Sisters struggle with this. So stay tuned. Lots of help on the way and uh, fun activities coming up, too. So Excellent. Okay, next question. Why does my anxiety medication make me want to sleep? Ah, well, pretty much everything makes me want to sleep, but I don't know the specifics of what medication this person is on. Drowsiness is a very common side effect of benzodiazepines. So that's like... If which, you're is on a, which is like Adam, Valium. Valium. Xanax. Xanax. Yeah. So, um, and also for many SSRIs. Yes, especially in the beginning. Yes. There might be, you might be getting a little drowsy. Remember, SSRIs are the ones you take daily, and the benzos are as needed. Right. And switching meds can sometimes fix this, sometimes just adjusting the meds a little bit. Every person is different. Every medication is different. And what are we not? We are not, not doctors. doctors. <laughs> um, so also, remember that anxiety itself is, is really very exhausting. So well, sometimes... That in, in combination with a medicine that might make you a little drowsy will suddenly make you feel twice as tired as you normally are, and you'll really notice it. Right. But keep in mind you're expending a lot of energy just spinning. Right. So, you know, if it's, if it's really bad, then please See talk your to your doctor. doctor. Okay, our next question. Are there any natural ways to relieve anxiety? Like, for example, vitamins. Okay, so first, before we answer this question, let's talk about the word natural, because that sometimes can be right. misleading, right? Right. I mean, natural, the, the definition of the word is that it's found in nature, but there are lots of things found in nature that can actually do more damage than things that aren't found in nature. So be careful about natural remedies. That's an advertising. Right, right. That's an it's a marketing ploy. It is a marketing ploy. What? Be careful about natural remedies and people that tell you they have a natural hair color. Those are the two things to be careful of. Well, as we talked about in our last episode, you get your CBD oil mm -hmm. that comes from marijuana. That's natural. Uh, um, you have essential oils such as lavender. And we're going to be doing um, a little bit of work on our about essential oils. We have a friend yes. who's going to be writing some about essential oils for us, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, more info coming. Uh, there's a homeopathic remedies and herbal medicines. Um, in terms of vitamins, the ones, the big ones are vitamin B, magnesium, vitamin C, and omega-3 fish oils. And I'll just say something about those each quickly. Um, first of all, I discovered that I had an extraordinarily low vitamin B12 in okay. my blood, so low that I was being asked if I was a vegan. So what does vitamin B12 do? Vitamin B12 is what they call the brain vitamin. The, a deficiency in vitamin B12 is correlated positively with dementia, early onset Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. anxiety, and depression. Oh, interesting. So it is worth your while to have, it's a simple blood test, to have okay. your B12 levels checked. Okay. You can get shots. 
once a month. You have your 12 shot. Yeah, no, they're yeah. no big deal. You know, I'm afraid of shots, and I had them every month. It was no big deal. Okay. And now I do a prescription B12 under the tongue every morning, and it really elevates your mood. I've noticed a difference. All the B vitamins are really important for brain health. So just think B is for brain. You want to have folate. You want to have B12. These are important supplements to have. So check your levels. What about magnesium? Magnesium also is a mood elevator and correlated with an increase in serotonin. Magnesium is found in dark chocolate. Of course, I don't like dark chocolate. Oh, I love dark chocolate. But anyway, magnesium is found in a lot of other foods as well. Um, It's escaping me right now about which ones. I wish we had Rebecca here. She would be telling us. Vitamin C has a tranquilizing effect on the body. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? So taking 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day is just a good thing to do. And it can't hurt you. If your body doesn't need it, you pee it right out. Okay. What about omega-3 fish oils? Omega-3 fish oils. Okay, so those are really important because those fortify your brain pathways. They fortify the neurons in your brain and they really help reduce anxiety, depression, and memory issues. I take omega-3 fish oils every day. I I mean, I know most people I know at my age do. So can you just ask any doctor to test these things for you? Yes, you can have your vitamin B, your magnesium, and your vitamin C levels checked. I don't know if you can have your omega-3s checked. I'm not aware of that. Okay. Again, not a doctor. Maybe you can. It's a commonly suggested supplement to take. Okay. For brain health in general is omega-3 fish oils. That's why they want you to eat wild fish twice a week or three times a week because of the omegas in them. They're really important for brain health. So remember, B vitamins for brain health. Magnesium, vitamin C, omega-3 fish oils. And then, you know, there's all kinds of other natural stuff you can find. Just remember that anything you ingest, natural or otherwise, can have side effects. You right. Know, even a vitamin. So our next question is, how does anxiety turn into feeling totally overwhelmed in many other areas of life? I'm starting to really see this for myself, and I'm wondering if others see it too. That's a great question. I think that's a really Excellent interesting question. question. Yes. Well, anxiety takes up a lot of physical and emotional energy. I always found that there's little energy for anything else in my life. When I'm really going through periods of high anxiety. Yeah. It's just enough to keep yourself from spinning off the cliff. Right. <laughs> you know, so right. you just don't have time and energy. To do much else. And, and I think that leads to feeling out of control. Absolutely. Because it's it's very hard to problem solve when you have anxiety. And then the um, problems stack up because you can't solve them and work on them. Exactly. And that also would make you feel very overwhelmed. And out of control. Yeah. So I think others definitely feel the same way. We, I know we, we felt feel that, that way. Yeah. We feel that way. So be, be compassionate with yourself. Because anxiety is a really hard illness to live with. It just is. It is. Absolutely. So a lot of our answers to these questions include the phrase, be compassionate with yourself or be kind with yourself or be gentle with yourself. And we're not saying that lightly. We're saying that you do have a brain illness. So it's okay if you're not perfect. If you can't do that mountain bike ride you were planning on a day when you're having some kind of spinning episode, well, forgive yourself because can't do everything. Right. And yes, anxiety itself is overwhelming, so it would make sense that it would spread to other areas of your life. Our next question reads as follows. I have had multiple events in the past month that have forced me to get up early, the dreaded demon of my existence. While I have some trouble going to sleep, overall I can manage. What can keep me awake, however, is the continual fear that if I wake up at, say, four, likely because of my anxiety, I won't be able to fall back asleep. And by the time I finally calm down, light is beginning to creep through the window. With midterms coming up, this feels more urgent than ever. How can I deal with this anxiety? Wow. We have a poet. 
We have a bow it, definitely. Anxiety disrupts sleep for a lot of us. And so it's important to remember, even though you're always going to hear that sleep is very important, and it is for performance in school and sports and, and everything else in life, most of us lose sleep or sleep badly, particularly right before an important event or midterms or finals. I didn't bother trying to sleep before my midterms. I just stayed up all night cramming. (laughs) Exactly. So you're in better shape than abs. So most of us go into important events without having slept really well the night before. And the thing is that we have some adrenaline in us. That's where anxiety helps a little bit. The adrenaline from our anxiety propels us forward and sort of helps keep our body alert and awake. So, So if it's just happening before big events... Yeah, I, I would sort of chalk while. it up to being human. Yes, I wouldn't be too concerned Even if it's about a whole it. week of midterms and you find you're having a whole week of tough sleep, that makes sense to me. Right. If, it, if it's happening for months at a time, every night, then you may want to get some more help with it. One thing that people have told us about that has yeah. helped them when they wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety is um, they develop a ritual. Okay. To put themselves back to sleep. Okay. Like, what would be a ritual? Like, what do you do? You're really going to out me here? <laughs> yes. All right. I have to tell them about Doug? Yes. All right. That is not our husband, by the way. No. My husband is... No, Doug is He's not my... sleeping. My husband's sleeping. I have a, a really soft, stuffed chicken named... It's like a little baby chicken, and it's, uh-huh. its name is Doug, and it's incredibly soft. It has the softest fur in the world. And so if This I, is not a live chicken. No live chickens have been harmed. No, this is not a live chicken. This is a stuffed animal I bought in Vermont. Okay. But anyway, so when I have trouble, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't fall back to sleep, I take Doug out of my drawer and I, I pet him. And his fur is really soothing. And I just keep petting him and it puts me back to sleep. I know that makes me sound nuts. But, uh, but thank you, Maggie, for inviting me to share that with all of our listeners. Uh, you know, but it doesn't, I think the, it, the piece of it that's important is the sensory piece. Right. Okay. So what I'm really getting is that I'm soothing myself through touch. Right. And you can soothe yourself through a sense of smell. Okay. I, I, I've met someone who keeps a lavender material by her bed and she just kind of smells it. And that lures her back to sleep. You right. can put on some music or sounds. Um, I know African drums can be really, really soothing and lure people back to sleep. There's all kinds of great meditative CDs, and that can soothe your sense of hearing. There's all kinds of things you can do right. as, as a nighttime ritual. You don't actually have to purchase a chicken and name it Doug. Right. So remember that you will be okay. Yes. Your adrenaline will get you through. Yes. Your body is designed to be able to miss sleep occasionally. Exactly. So our next question comes from a new mom. She asks, how do you get over the fear of being home alone? I just had a baby and my husband is going back to work and my anxiety level is sky high. I was like this even before the baby, but now knowing the baby is dependent on me, it scares me even more. It is pretty scary. Yeah, having a baby. (laughs) Those first days of being alone with a baby. First months. Yeah. Do you remember I used to make Jay come home from work after lunch every single day? And sometimes stay home from work. Oh, and then stay home. Yes. (laughs) He came home for the day at at 12 o'clock because I couldn't take it anymore. It was so frightening. Yeah, it it is a very scary time. And it sounds like you're dealing with two things because already you were a little bit afraid of being alone. And now not only do you still have that fear of being alone, but now you have this baby who's completely dependent upon you. Yes. So your fears are incredibly justified. 
So we have some ideas for you. Very tangibly, a lot of moms do a new moms group and exactly. where they can make some friends. That saved me. I, did a, I yeah. met three other women with babies roughly John's age, and we did a every Friday mom group. And I found that I that when I was feeling anxiety about being alone, which I did, a, yeah. John was a winter baby, so yeah. I was really alone in the cold for a long time. Yeah, long. it's hard. They would, they would come over. I would go to their house. Right, you do just, play dates. Um, and I think you'll find that most moms, especially with first babies, feel really frightened. So yes, it's something that you can bond on. Exactly. Invite friends over, family members over for a visit. You just, you sort of want to figure out how you're going to structure your day. And a new mom's group is, is a great part of that structure. Even taking like a baby and me class. Jamboree, music and me. Those those are really to have structure in your day more than anything else. And honestly, even though they, they probably benefit the baby, the truth is they benefit the moms. Exactly. Much Which more. benefits the baby. Yeah, of course. Because then you're not feeling alone and you're with other mothers and you're all sharing your stories and realizing that you're not alone. And that all moms feel frightened with this baby that's dependent on them. It's a, it's a really common source of anxiety, even for people who don't suffer from anxiety. Absolutely. And the other thing is, it's not a bad idea to check in with your doctor just to make sure you're not experiencing any kind of postpartum depression or anxiety, both of which are often overlooked yes. in new moms. And they're both treatable. They are. They I are. had postpartum depression undiagnosed, and it was completely treatable. And that was a lost time in my life. I had my Absolutely. doctor understood about postpartum depression and anxiety, I would have been... A different mom those first six months. Absolutely. So I encourage people that if it really feels to you like it's more than you can handle, it's more, you you know, you know in your gut if it's more than feels comfortable. It doesn't make you a bad mom to get help. It makes you a good mom. Absolutely not. And just so you know, for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, short-term medication is a great remedy. I mean, lots of moms can go on something like an SSRI for a short period of time, and it does the trick. So don't be a martyr. If, if it's really bad and it's disrupting your ability to bond with your baby and enjoy your life on some level, I mean, since you're not sleeping, you're not going to enjoy your life on all levels. But if you find that it's really monopolizing your energy, the anxiety, then go check with your doctor because there are some really great remedies that can be temporary and get you through. Our next question is, how do you manage your anxiety while you're also deep in the grieving process? My meds have become less effective and my sleep is all over the place. I've upped my self-care, but nothing seems to be helping. Wow. It's, it's really very difficult to manage anxiety during the grieving process. There's a psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Roth, who, who talks about five stages of grieving. Anger, bargaining, denial, depression, acceptance. Exactly. Very good, Abby. Amazing in psychology. <laughs> and um, many, many people, many grief counselors think that she left out anxiety. We believe that strongly. Very much so. There is definitely, and, and anxiety isn't its own stage. It permeates all the stages. Right. And, and the stages always are bleeding into each other. And um, not necessarily in the same order. Right. So anxiety is a large part of the grief process. And it really can't be avoided, just like you, the rest think, of the I think if you process. try to avoid a feeling in general, if you're trying to, to, to shut out a feeling, it actually increases anxiety. Exactly. We live in a culture where people expect you to get over grief in a certain amount of time, to grieve in a certain way. And so often you have a lot of pressure to sort of be better already. Right. But grief, 
grief is a very, very long process. Yes, and it's different for everybody. There is no time frame exactly. for loss. Exactly. There is none. I mean, for some people, it's quick. For some people, it's years. And I wish it were more approved of in our society to, to feel a chronic grief. Right. I, I certainly struggled with that when I lost my grandmother. Right. I had really profound anxiety and depression and chronic grief for two full years. Right. And it was unacceptable in society. And I, and I had a hard time because of that. There was right. expectation on me that I couldn't. I couldn't live up to. Grief can go on for a really long time, and sometimes it's intense, and sometimes it's less intense, and hits you some days harder than others. But part of it is you're going to have to let yourself feel whatever feelings come up. And and not be concerned about what others are thinking. You really do have to. This is self-care, is to let yourself grieve in the way that, you're, that you need to grieve. And poor sleep quality is part of grief, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, with all these feelings going on, it's awfully yeah. hard to... Yeah, it's a, it's a very profound part of grief. However, if it... your meds are actually less effective, if you notice a difference in the quality of your life in terms of the medication, that's yeah. something where, of course, you can see your doctor. Meds, support groups are often helpful, and grief counselors. Yes. I cannot tell you how helpful my grief counselor was. Hmm. I really, I had a hospice counselor actually, yeah. and and she it really was has to be really... someone who specializes in grief and is not sort of afraid of grief. Exactly. Yeah, there are ways to get help, but but the process is going to be the process. Exactly. And... You know, even even a wonderful grief counselor is not going to shorten. Right. Your so grief so honor process. your own process. Our next question states: I'm beginning to feel like anxiety has become a constant companion. I find things to worry about out of habit. Does this ever happen to others? I wasn't always like this. Maybe it just gets worse as I age. Interesting question. Yeah. Interesting question. Well, the first thing that both of us thought about was, you know, you're sort of naming what anxiety disorder is. Right. When anxiety is your constant companion, you have anxiety disorder. <laughs> exactly. So we have all have neural pathways that get carved out and and our thoughts do become habit well that's what a habit is right yeah. it's like when you do something over and over your brain creates a shortcut right and then it clicks on that icon whenever the situation comes up things that can be really effective for this is actually a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy right because the idea is that you you can sort of rework these pathways yeah you retrain your brain right. the brain is incredibly malleable it's called neuroplasticity Mm-hmm. which means that the brain is adaptive. And they didn't used to think that. Ten years ago, we thought that what you had was what you had. And now we know that the brain can change all the way into you know your later years of life. Yeah, so this is the type of anxiety disorder that's treated really well with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Also, medication might be warranted. And regarding aging, everyone's different. But yeah. what we do know is that uh, hormones can cause spikes in anxiety. And... Menopause time is a notorious time for an increase in anxiety as we age. Now, age of menopause is different for everyone, but surrounding that hormonal fluctuation, that's when a lot of anxiety comes up in people who may not have had as much before. Exactly. Your body chemistry changes as we age, right? Yeah. I mean, there used to be a thing where every seven years your body changed. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. They now know it's not every seven years. It's different for everybody. It could be four years, five years. It depends on the person. Oh, interesting. But they do know that your body chemistry does change. Yes. As we age. 
So that makes some sense. And of course, if your body chemistry is changing, then your neurotransmitters, which are part of your body chemistry, your serotonin, your norepinephrine, and all your hormone and levels. all your hormone levels are going to be in flux and may create an anxiety disorder, may right. create a lack of serotonin or a lack of dopamine or a lack of something you need to make yourself calm. Our next question is, do others with anxiety find it hard to make or keep friends? I have lost so many friends since I started having anxiety issues and find it hard to make new ones. People just seem to treat me differently once they find out I have anxiety. Well, we both can definitely relate to having <laughs> lost many, many friends many, due to anxiety. Many, friends. <laughs> and, and part of it is... Not so much the anxiety disorder itself or how they view the anxiety disorder, although that can be a, an issue, but it's it's things that when anxiety disorder is at its height that we stop doing. Exactly. So it's a friend wants to meet you at a party and you're having a major panic attack, you're going to cancel last minute on that party and your friend is not going to want to put more energy and stock into a relationship that she feels right. is not going to... Right, or a friend who invites you to her black tie wedding and had you had to turn around driving to Boston. Oh, yeah. yeah she and she didn't really understand if you weren't in the hospital. She's why not at the talking last to minute. you anymore, is she? No. <laughs> no, I haven't spoken in a long time. You know, or friends that you just stopped reaching out to. So they'd invite you places I mean, don't or forget that, that that creating connections with people and friendships requires a lot of energy. It does. So if you're spending the bulk of your time managing your anxiety, especially if you're in the height of a panic type of uh, disorder or a social anxiety disorder, something that's very acute at the moment, you're not going to have a lot of energy left to reach out and make those connections. And people will call you flaky. They'll say you're unreliable. They'll say that you've, you know, that they don't like that part of your personality because they don't understand. Right. That it is not a personality trait. It is not a flaw or a weakness. So you're not fragile. What, it, what you have is a brain illness. Right. And you're right. learning to manage it. And part of the stigma of brain illnesses is really that people don't understand if you said to someone, I have anxiety disorder, it's not so much that they're saying, ooh, I don't want to be friends with someone with anxiety disorder. It's more that they don't understand how that looks in real life. And they don't know what to say to you because right. they, they don't know what's going to cause your anxiety or not. Right, so, and they don't know that just having anxiety disorder means that you don't show up at, at the party or that you don't return calls sometimes or, you know, that you're, you're less available to do things with them. So it's confusing to people. That's part of the stigma. Yes, it is, and fear of what you don't understand. Yes, absolutely. Even anxiety sisters have told us in their emails to us that before they had anxiety, they too judged people or dropped friendships with people with anxiety or depression because they didn't understand. But now yeah. that they are sufferers, they get it and they regret so much not, you know, but, but I say, forgive yourself because it's really hard to understand what you haven't experienced. I no, mean, it is. I, I had a friend growing up with very severe depression and, you know, and I would call and call and call and often she wouldn't call me back or I'd invite her somewhere and she wouldn't respond. And I remember saying to my mom, like, I don't know that we're friends anymore because yeah. I don't I don't see her. And, and my mom, having been a social worker, you know, was able to say to me, wait, no, that's depression. That's right. what depression looks like. Right. But for me, I didn't had no idea what that was. So, I mean, I do have a piece of advice 
for people who are suffering from anxiety and depression and are finding it difficulty finding difficulty making and keeping friendships and that is find an anxiety sister to be friends with. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's yeah. not an accident that you and I have been best friends for 30 plus years. Yeah. It's that we can flake out on each other and understand why. Right. You know, or we can we know what to say to each other when we're in the midst of a spinning episode and those happen. It's not right. like it's not like we don't ever experience anxiety anymore. We do. We just understand it and it's really helpful to have people in your life who understand it, who live it. Right. And it's okay to also Try to educate some of your friends, too. Oh, definitely. Listen, have them listen to our podcasts. Have them look at our website. I mean, we try to make our website really approachable so that people without anxiety will be interested, too. Right, so that they can really understand what's happening with you. So don't give up on the friendships. Right. And, you know, this group is always here for you on Facebook, on our website. You then know. you can have 25,000 friends. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> our last question that we're going to do today goes as follows. When you feel like you're truly doing better, like you are back to yourself, how do you ward off the fear of the extreme anxiety and depression coming back? So basically this person is asking about relapse. Right. Which, which is, is scary. It is scary. I mean, the, tr the truth is brain illnesses are often cyclical. That it will ebb true. and flow. It will ebb and Partially flow. Partially due to hormonal fluctuations and body chemistry. And life circumstances. Life circumstances and how you're treating it at any particular time. But the good news, at least like I think the good news, is that you do gain experience in how to deal with it. True. So I know the first time I started to have acute anxiety attacks, I really didn't even know what they were. I really didn't even know that they were a brain illness. I, know, I that thought was it was so terrifying. And I thought I was having physical problems, and it's so terrifying. You know, and I, I went on medication, and I got much better. And a few years later, I did have a relapse with panic attacks. But this time I knew pretty certainly what it was that right. was happening to me. And so it I was, took the edge off quite a bit. Right. And I knew actually not only to go on medication, but I knew what kind of therapy would be helpful for me. Right. And I knew what kinds of things I needed to do. The longer you have anxiety disorder, yeah. the more of an expert you become. And Maggie and I could not have been the anxiety sisters in trying to help other people manage their anxiety when we were 20 because we were not yet experts in it. We had not yet figured out right. things that work and how to cope and how to manage. You start to recognize your signs and symptoms and how to sometimes be able to even not get to a really acute phase. You know the types of things to do for yourself. You do. My first panic attacks, I was in the hospital. My, I would say that was the first, you know, five panic attacks. Then the subsequent 20 panic attacks uh, kept me in my bed for the rest of the day and night. Right. And now when I have a panic attack, I am doing whatever I'm doing. I mean, I was teaching a class. And right. I had a panic attack in the middle of teaching the class, and I continued right on, finished teaching the class, and thought to myself, wow, look at what I can do. Absolutely. And I was aware of it, and it made a huge difference. And the same goes for, I think, depression, that it's not that you're never going to get depressed again. There are certain things that you can do that will help lift you quicker. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's some comfort in that, I think. There is. That's the, that's the benefit of experience. <laughs> If you emailed us a question and it wasn't answered on these two podcasts, please check our forums on our website as we post answers there as well. And keep them coming. We promise to do our best to, keep, to get to all of them 
maybe not as quickly as we could have when there were only a few hundred Anxiety Sisters, but we are still just as committed to helping as many people as we possibly can. So just have a little patience and keep emailing us and we will keep answering everything that you ask. There are a lot of you on Facebook that have been asking me if we've received your questions. So what we want to let you know is on our website, if you put the questions in the box of Ask the Anxiety Sisters, we don't see even who that question is coming from. It, it's, it or not. Ju- it's just a question and it says thanks. Right. So we don't know who to email back or who to acknowledge. And that's why um, we answered it on this podcast. because Right. And so they truly are confidential because we don't even know who's sending them. So if you want us to know or you need an answer right back from us, you can email us. That will be confidential as well. The only people who will see it are me and Mags. Or you can message us privately on Facebook, which a number of you have done. Yes, and those get pretty fast responses because Mags is really on Facebook 24-7 these days. And if you if you do somehow email or send a question to us and you really haven't heard back, resend because yes. <laughs> we will we will really attempt to answer things. Yes, we, we never want to leave anybody out intentionally. We or we earnestly want to answer every question that we get. So Okay. So okay. what's happening in 2018 oh, since we're such at the a, end of 2017? Yeah, such a good year for the Anxiety Sisters. Thanks to you guys for 2017. We're very blessed. And in 2018, we are going to make some changes. The first thing we're going to try to do, and I'm saying try, yeah. can't promise, but we're going to try to podcast twice a month. A lot of you have been saying that once a month is too infrequent, and we get it. We love podcasting, and we have so many things to talk about. So we're going to try to do it twice a month. We're also going to have many more guests on our show, lots of interviewees, some authors, experts in various fields. I know that the founder of the Crisis Text Line is going to be on one of our podcasts. Mm-hmm. I have somebody from the CBD Foundation that's going to be on one of our podcasts. So we have some really cool people we're going to talk to this year. As soon as we figure out the technology. As, yes, as soon as we figure out the technology a, a little better. Yeah. We're getting there. Yeah. We're getting Abby's it. getting there. Yeah. I'm not getting Maggie there. Maggie is not getting there. Maggie has technological anxiety and it's not getting any better. No, it's not. Uh, we've got a few fun surprises for you too. So please stay tuned for our second season of the spin cycle as always if you have an idea for a podcast or you'd like to be a guest please email us we're we're very interested to hear from you okay thank you so much for joining us and remember anxiety anxiety sisters sisters don't go it alone you have been listening to the spin cycle an anxiety sisters production copyright 2017 always reserved